hey everyone, I am back today talking about Walter Benjamin's On the Concept of History, which is also titled Theses on the Philosophy of History. And I chose this text because I was like, oh, it's short. I can cover this easily. Nope, I cannot emphasize how many different sources I had to consult in order to understand what the hell is going on here. Now, with that being said, if anyone tells you they have the definitive answer as to what Benjamin is saying in this text, then they are lying to you, which I know is a brazen thing to say, but it's a very complicated text and there's a lot of moving parts. One could argue it's not even finished. It's hard to necessarily know uh, just how far Benjamin may have taken these ideas because he wrote it shortly before he had died, uh, died by suicide, fell victim to suicide as he uh, tried to flee the Nazis, which is very tragic. So this was written... Uh, in 1940. Now, hi, if you're new here, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts, texts, ideas to help you along your philosophical journey. So if you're new here, you can like, share, subscribe, and see videos I release every single week. That is if you're on YouTube. If you have found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find this as a podcast on pretty much any podcast platform where there shouldn't be ads. Sometimes they run anyways because these platforms, you know, you know how they work. Uh, but ads should be at the minimum. If you want to help me out, you know, you can follow me on all the different platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, regrettably, I hate Twitter. Uh, <laughs> or you can help me out monetarily via uh, Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Links for all such things in the descriptions. And yeah, I think that's all I want to say. Let's jump into Walter Benjamin's On the Concept of History that is broken into 18 different paragraphs, each numbered. And they are 18 different points. It's very aphoristic in that he is supplying us with these 18 different ideas that are connected, more or less connected, but the actual cohesion between them is difficult to really, really to imagine. Now, as I go through this, because I am not confident that anyone can definitively say that they figured this text out, I'm going to be posing questions. These are questions for you that if you felt like answering in the comments or in a review on a podcast platform, I'd love to hear what people had to say. Now, starting out with number one, and I'm not going to number them as we go, just because that's too disjointed. I'm going to present it to you like a narrative. So he begins by t mentioning what's called the Turk. The Turk was a machine designed to provide the illusion in the eight, late 18th century, that a puppet was a chess master. So there was this guy called the Turk, or well, he was a Turkish guy who carried this machine around and claimed that this was an autonomous machine that could beat anyone at chess. It was essentially like a supercomputer at chess. Now, it was eventually revealed, although was it really revealed? I mean, who knows? Uh, the idea is that actually within this machine was hidden... Uh, a tiny person who was the equivalent of a chess master who was actually making the moves for a little puppet on top of the machine that was ostensibly playing. So you would come up to this machine and you'd be playing against a puppet that you were told was an autonomous machine, but really the idea was that there was actually a little person controlling the strings of the puppet and making the moves for them without, um, I guess, without the other player knowing what was going on. 
So why does Benjamin start with this image of this chess machine? Like, what is the point of that? Well, he's using this as an analogy to understand what historical materialism is. Now, just to be very clear and at the expense of really the complexity of the term, historical materialism is the effort to look through history as pretty simply as material. That is, there are real historical material instances, real instances in the world that are not reducible to abstract uh, phenomena like absolute spirit or like, as we will see, like progress. Instead, materialism looks at the world and tries to understand various historical institutions or developments and locating them at an even earlier time and understanding the present by understanding these historical moments, these historical movements, which we're going to complicate. This is just a very basic introduction. Now, what he uses this chess metaphor for is to say that historical materialism is like the puppet. That is, many people use this idea of historical materialism and they say, oh, this is the definitive answer to all of the problems confronting the oppressed people on earth, specifically the oppressed working people, the proletariat. So historical materialism is seen as this perfect uh, solution to all of the world's problems in its investigatory capacity. So it is like the puppet. The puppet is a machine that can't lose at chess, at least that's how it's viewed. But in order for the puppet to work, it needs to hide something underneath it. It needs to hide the true source of its power. And that is, in the case of the machine, it's a tiny person who can control, or someone who can fit in the box, who can control what is actually going on, who can make the moves, who can actually allow historical materialism, or sorry, allow the puppet to work. Now, what is the puppet to historical materialism for Benjamin? For Benjamin, what historical materialism always tries to hide away is not a tiny person who can fit in a box, not a specific person. Instead, it is theology, which might seem totally strange because if anyone knows anything about historical materialism, that is, it's going to look at real historical instances as being driving factors in the creation of today, in the creation of anything we know today. Theology doesn't do that. Although I'm going to add an asterisk in that we're going to complicate this a bit. But theology looks to the metaphysical, looks beyond the physical world, looks beyond the terrestrial plane in, to something else, to abstract qualities like human spirit connected to God or divine will in driving human movement, which is like, wait, wait, wait. So I thought historical materialism was supposed to be different than theology. Well, the point here is for Benjamin, at least in the way that I understand it, the point here is to say that there is no fully uh, perfect approach to understanding the world that is like a detached, neutral tool that grapples with historical instances without being attached to some degree of interest. So it is that is historical materialism is always tied to the similar capacities or the similar practices of theology in that it 
only looks to some instances and attributes them certain value based off of its attachment to certain principles. So it is contextual. It is very much going to depend upon a contextual approach that looks at specific moments in order to attribute value to them as though they were like given to us by God or something like they have a kind of religious importance. All the while, historical materialism claims to move beyond theology, to get away from it, which is just, it's duping itself. It's confusing itself. Now, to jump ahead a little bit, because if, you know, you're just given this idea, it's very confusing. What he's going to say throughout this essay, and he's going to build towards, is that in order for a revolutionary movement to occur, it must be in tune with its past. And it must be in tune with that specific past that gave it its potential in that moment, and it must capitalize on that moment. I'm using that term cheekily to capitalize, because of course that's not what they, they want. They don't want, they want to separate themselves from that drive, but they want to take advantage of that moment in ending the oppression of the past because they have been fully committed to the past. They have fully acknowledged the past as a past of suffering, and they are going to end this legacy. They're going to end this cycle right now. And that will be uh, the moment. Now, in order to do that depends upon an adherence to a tradition. It means looking to the past with a specific idea in mind. And when you do this, you are attributing certain value to history that maybe on its own doesn't really exist. This is one of the mysteries of this text. Is it that history exists out there? Or does history exist only when we give it meaning? Now, this is a tension throughout the text, and it's difficult to say, like, whether it's attributed to history, this value, or it's found within it itself. So there are two broad things going on here in this text. Firstly, he's calling attention to the creation of history itself, not necessarily to critique it, because he's going to find value, and this is the second element of the text, in the use of history in bringing together the past and the present while separating the future, but we'll get to that. So he's doing this in order to provide justification for the immediate countermeasure against an emerging fascism, or really a, not emerging, a really uh, existent fascism in 1940s Europe, and really imploring people to oppose it immediately and not to say, oh, well, we'll deal with this in the future. So that is what's, these, these are the kind of two things going on here. Criticizing history, but at the same time, finding out ways to use it in order to oppose the difficulty, really the, the horrors of European fascism at this time. And we can do this by embracing, although this can be a point of contention, embracing the theological components of historical materialism instead of trying to renounce it. Instead of trying to say that historical materialism is neutral, it's objective. Instead, we must embrace that it is not objective. It represents the interests of the oppressed group and says that now is the time to undo this oppression, to end it. Not to say that, oh, there's this objective history and it's human history and it's just, we're just moving along with it. We're just going with the flow. No, no, no. He wants us to embrace a more narrow form of history, a specific history. 
Now, it's not as though our embracement of the past is just to mount a revolutionary challenge against our oppressors. Certainly at the time where he's targeting fascism, he's targeting uh, capitalist overlords, he's targeting uh, social democrats in government, he's targeting pretty much everyone, except for a very specific camp of Marxists, which is a it can often be difficult for those that aren't totally familiar with Benjamin. It can be difficult to situate him among other Marxist camps. He's a, he's a little bit more of a loose cannon. He's a free-floating agent in these fields, which makes him all the more interesting. He was, uh, he was crafting out his own avenue of thought. So it's not as though the only thing at stake in embracing our history or our past is this revolutionary struggle. For, uh, for Benjamin... Actually, happiness itself emerges from our connection to our past. And that is because it is from the past that we have clung to, our specific past that we understand. That is, whether we do it deliberately or not, whether it's subconscious or not. It is from there that we determine or that determines what makes us happy. It's from our histories that we actually know can learn about ourselves, not the future. Like, the future is not written. Who the hell? Who cares? The point is that we extract our identities from our past. Now, if anyone has seen Blade Runner, the original, uh, you'd know that memory is a fundamental quality of what makes us human. At least, this is what the movie, <laughs> the question, one of the main questions in the movie raises. That is, what does it mean if your memories are implanted and they are not your own? Do you have a sense of self? Even if your memories are implanted, does it matter? How do we actually distinguish between robots at some point, or androids, I should say, at some point, versus humans if they're indistinguishable in terms of their memories in creating their identity? So anyways, that's, for him, happiness is found in the past, but so is envy. That is, anything that we envy today comes from an attachment to something in the past. If you once dated someone who's now dating someone else, the reason that you experience envy is that you cannot have that thing that you once had an attachment to in history. So that, or for him really, what we never had or lost that someone else may now possess, or you know, at least something that we knew about in our history. So in this case, happiness and envy represent a kind of resurrection of the past. In those moments that we feel happy about something, we are excited about something, we are drawing upon our past experiences to lend that moment a certain degree of legitimacy and also significance in our lives, enough so to make us feel excitement or to feel happy. We wouldn't know to feel excited about something unless we have some historical basis to actually attribute value to that thing that will make us feel happy. Similarly with envy and so many other emotions, it's just that these are the ones he gives us in the text. Now, he's telling us this because he's emphasizing the importance of the past in who we are today. And this opens up some questions. What obligation then do we have to the people of the past or to our own lives, our own experiences in the past? Surely we can't view them as just like martyrs, people who just suffered to give us what we have today, the gifts of today, and then we will suffer for the people of tomorrow and so on and so forth. Benjamin is trying to break away from that line of thinking into one that actually embraces the struggle here and now. So this unity of the past and the present represents a messianic 
power, uh, referring to the Messiah. And there are so many religious uh, references here that I'm not going to be able to unpack really all of them, just because they're so, there's so many and it, it's very complicated. But what he is saying here is that in the fact that anything that we experience signals a resurrection of the past, he's using the biblical figure of Jesus and Jesus's resurrection, even though he was Jewish, and there, there are tensions here in the different uses and understandings of the term Messiah. But if we think about it in terms of Jesus as resurrecting from death, he is applying the same logic to the resurrection of the past in the present, in everything that we do, everything that we understand. And because there is this really strong connection with the past, we must respect it. We must take it seriously. We must atone for the horrors inflicted on our past, in our past, and the past of those that came before us, because we have a debt to pay. Now, in this moment, he refers to this as a weak messianic power. And I think that that is because at this moment, he hasn't fully embraced the idea or suggested that we use this messianic power, this ability to resurrect the past for a specific revolutionary aim. Instead, he's just referring to this as a kind of universal quality of all humans. If, you know, you feel any kind of feeling, you're going to be drawing from the past. This is the weak messianic power, whereas a stronger messianic power or just messianic power proper, is that deliberate, intentional reclamation of the past in order to motivate a change today, to oppose the oppression experienced today. Now, th this is debatable, and I'd love to hear what people think, but this is what, in all my reading, this is, this is how I grasp this. Now, if a society ever fully embraces its past has fully resurrected it in understanding all of the components that led to its creation, specifically really the suffering that led to it, then we are going to be open to what he calls the fullness of its past or our past, if our society does it, where every previous moment is citable and understood. So he's definitely drawing from Marx here. One of Marx's really important insights from Capital from the three volumes of Capital, is that capitalism does not just emerge organically with the introduction of the division of labor. So if you read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, he starts it out by saying, or by celebrating, this thing called the division of labor that just seemed to have fallen down to earth from the gods. And people adopted this, and this started to create value. And this value started to be contained in the hands of a few wealthy people who could then create more jobs, who could then expand wealth, expand value, distribute value naturally through the invisible hand of the system itself. Now, what Marx says is that no, no, no. This is such a rosy picture of actually what occurred. In order for capitalism to have actually emerged required that millions of people were displaced from their homes, they were colonized, they were murdered, they were violently um, reduced to uh, in being enslaved people. Like, it's not as though it was just this introduction of a different way of organizing labor that created this. There is this entire history that political economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, among others, tried to hide in the history of capitalism, you know, deliberately or not, but they hid it in order to 
proffer this idea of capitalism's ultimate benevolence. Now, to do what Benjamin suggests here is to be in tune with the whole picture of capitalism's emergence in the oppression of working people, which means to acknowledge all of the messiness, all of the violence, the exploited labor, the horrible working conditions, the 20-hour days, the children working in factories, like coal factories, dying of lung cancer in, in their teen years, where people are losing limbs, they're receiving no money, they're constantly being laid off, they're being uh, essentially um, evicted from their homes because they can't pay their rent, people are dying hungry on the street because the system can't provide for them, and it exploits them. So it means acknowledging all of this. So for a society to fully embrace this past in understanding all of the violent roots of itself in its past would be a moment of really resurrection, it would be messianic in that the past has re-emerged and it would force that society to confront its problems immediately. Now here he introduces us to the figure of the chronicler and the chronicler is the person who just kind of really uh, like the there's um like the flaneur, not the flaneur, the uh, Agnes Varda. She has a film called The Gleaners and I, at least the English translation, that is about like people who collect things, uh, at least part of it, and or the whole thing. I don't know. I don't fully remember. Anyways, people collecting things. The chronicler is like the person collecting all these historical instances in space in in history without necessarily attributing value to them. He, he you know, he. <laughs> They're just the person who compiles all of the information they can get their hands on, really setting out the picture of possible uh, significant points that someone else can attribute value to. But, you know, we, when confronted with these types of ideas, because Benjamin is not totally clear in what he thinks of the chronicler or their place, we have to ask, like, is it ever possible to really be this neutral status figure who's just compiling all, you know, historical moments just without any real agenda. They're just doing it totally neutrally and objectively. I would say that that is impossible in that, you know, you can't collect all of the, you know, historical moments because they're infinite. And we have to ask which ones are actually given attention, which are the ones that are actually represented. So the historian is always implicated within certain normative understandings and really preferences for what gets told and retold historically. So what we see in this text is that there is this person and there's this enterprise called historicism that he contrasts with with historical materialism and historicism is just this apparently this enterprise that just tries to find the universals within history it finds to it tries to look at the world neutrally and objectively which you know we know now is impossible like this person everyone is always wrapped up in their own uh biases in their own interests and their work is going to reflect that. So, you know, thinking back on Benjamin, we might actually say that, well, these historians who participate in historicism instead of historical materialism are themselves just as theological. They are, you know, just looking at the past with their own, uh, with their own lens, trying to make sense, trying to resurrect that past for their own, their own ends. But yeah, anyways, that's my thing. So any society or any person that is fully opened up to their past would only do so at a moment so significant as that of like Judgment Day. 
in that there would be the perfect meeting of past and present, and in that meeting would usher in a revolutionary energy and potential that would completely overhaul what we know about the world. And in that, it would be like a kind of judgment day. Is it a call to violence that Benjamin is advocating? It's hard to tell. Is he saying this would be like a judgment day against the oppressors? Hard to say what he's saying here. Uh, you know, we, we have to just try to decipher this and make sense of it. But the point being that at the very least, it would be an event tantamount to on par with the significance of Judgment Day. So it can be a moment of atonement where we properly pay our debts to those of the past. Now, here he turns really more specifically to the class struggle that he characterizes as a fight for material things that are the conditions for the possibility of spiritual things. At least, this is how it might be popularly understood, where the class struggle is just an effort to reclaim or to claim money and wealth and resources that the privileged bourgeois ruling class has gained their, has really acquired. And the Marxist would say, if we you know, really adopt a vulgar Marxist idea, the Marxist would say, well, and it is from these material things that then spirituality can flourish, that then where then culture can flourish and so on. Like if we think of the base and superstructure phenomenon, where the base within a Marxist paradigm refers to the ways that labor is primary and necessary and work primary and necessary to then allow for culture to emerge, for, to then allow for religion to emerge and so on. Now, this is true of all societies, not just under capitalism or under feudalism. Those economic conditions were necessary to create the culture on top of it. And the culture and identities on top of it are going to be contingent upon, to some extent, and tethered to that economic base. However, Benjamin is not saying that. Benjamin is actually saying that within the class struggle is always, there's always some spiritualism embedded within it. Very much like how at the very beginning, historical materialism, you know, far from totally dis, uh, disavowing theology, really embraces it more than most other types of, well, maybe not more than, anyways, embraces theology. So here we see that within the class struggle for Benjamin is the embracement of spirituality in the form of confidence, courage, humor cunning and fortitude that each extend far into the past and these supply another justification for the movement itself people don't just fight for material things they fight for these other things that are much more abstract they are in a, in a sense than spiritual they are cultural it's not as though we just live our lives to better organize our material world to just satisfy our needs like what a sad life that would be. We do things for much more than that, in that they appeal to our, to our minds and to our spiritual inclinations. So the victors of class struggle, or of any struggle throughout the course of history, they have too naively located their success in their having acquired material things. So they get wealth, they get riches, they get castles, they get land, and they're like, look, this is why I, I have won. I have all this stuff. Whereas for Benjamin, there is a lot more value to actually be gained in these spiritual things, the ones he just mentioned, like confidence, courage, humor, cunning, and fortitude, that 
you might not actually acquire in winning the war or winning the battle. You might get in having lost it. Now, that he's not saying, he's not trying to justify that the victors just keep keep what they have because, you know, oh, your castle doesn't compare with my humor. He's not saying that. He's just trying to attribute value beyond or to understand the motivations behind class struggle as being more than just about material things. He's lending some, or he's providing some room to inject some spiritual qualities here. So the power of history's victors is then always being challenged in our also, in our also being attuned to and emphasizing the value of these other things that uh, go beyond just physical, material uh, pursuits. So what, what exactly does it mean for him to look to the past? It is to grab a snapshot within the totality of history. At least for him, this is what the historical materialist does. They just grab a photo of history and attribute the value to it, but they compile a bunch of these photos to make sense of their, um, I guess, of their current situation. But are these snapshots or these photos neutral or do they become significant in their being decided upon as significant? Does the historical materialist know what they're looking for? Or do they find something and they're like, oh, this can work in understanding my current predicament, which is going to be subjective. It's going to be up for interpretation. Like, I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm posing this question to you. It's hard to say. I think for Benjamin, history is not out there. It doesn't just exist out there and we just have to go dig through it like a, like a chest full of trinkets and then find the thing we, you know, this is, oh yeah, this is what we need to put in our to make our car work, I don't know, whatever. He's not saying that. He's saying that history only exists in those moments that it is looked back upon with the effort to understand our, really to understand our present, to understand anything, and to, it is given value by virtue of that. And I think this is adduced, or this is, we, we can prove this when he says that there is a risk that the image will disappear, the snapshot will disappear if we don't see ourselves in it. So if we can't actually locate ourselves, find ourselves in that image, it'll disappear. But what does that mean then for history? Does it, where does it disappear to? Does it just fall back in this bin of history that's just sitting there? Or does it disappear entirely? I think this is an important question to ask ourselves. I think it's the latter. I think it just disappears entirely, but I'm open to different ideas. So this would be, I think, like the dialectical element of, of memory for Benjamin. That is, you are looking to the past in its attachment to the present. And you can make sense of it in that respect. And looking to the past and looking at the struggles embedded within it in order to make sense of our present. So there's always this attachment to what might be exterior to us and connecting it to us. And that's how I understand it as dialectical. So are we committing an erasure when we grab this snapshot, when we look back and we say, okay, this is significant? Because if we imbue the snapshot with significance, does this erase everything else that came before it? Which is another, like, even when we look back and we say, oh, this is important. What we are doing in that moment is kind of, we are reifying, we are elevating, making tangible a specific moment as being significant 
But in doing so, we erase all the instances before it or we, or we subordinate them from understanding the significant moment, where that significant moment then comes to stand in for everything before it. It's like, for example, if you have a number, if you have a bunch of numbers and you add them up on like a calculator, and as you're writing it, you know, you, have th you see that on the screen, you have three plus seven plus nine, whatever, and you add up to a final number and then you hit uh, like equals, you get your final number and it has erased all the numbers that came before it, all those numbers that added up to it. And you're just left with that final number. There's a problem here because suddenly you're not going to be able to fully understand this number that you have if you've forgotten all the numbers that equaled up to it. That is because, depending on what you're trying to do, it's going to be super important for you to know these numbers that came before it. If you're looking at, I don't know, the cost of, average cost of houses. It's a stupid example, but let's say you, you wanted to know the average cost of houses on one street, and there are two houses. One house is $100 and one house is $500,000. And, you know, you find out that the average is $250,000 approximately. $250,050, whatever it would be. That is not actually a very good indication of what's going on in that street at all. But it stands in for that street and actually comes to replace the previous knowledge that would furnish us with actually more knowledge. And then even going further, looking at those specific numbers, just if we have this $100 figure for this one house, erases all the history before it as to what that you know, what caused it to be $100? What's going on here? Or the two hundred, or the $500,000 house, sorry, explaining why, why that one's worth $500,000, the exploitation behind it. So in grabbing these snapshots that he talks about here, which he seems to look upon approvingly, he, he likes this practice. I am encouraged to ask what the problem might be in that practice. What is being erased when we attach ourselves to these specific moments? Uh, but anyway, back to you. What do you think? So in this type of moment, when we grab this snapshot, what we are doing is conjuring up this moment in part or in the past as a moment in response to a moment of danger. So if somebody feels like their identity is being threatened or their history is being threatened, they jump back to the past and say, okay, okay, I have to justify this. I have to understand this experience. So in the case of the oppressed masses, oppressed working people, the proletariat, they will look to the past and say, oh, I have this snapshot of this suffering under capitalism and this one and this one and this one. And they compile them and say like, look, I am doing this to draw attention to this danger I'm experiencing to contextualize this danger not to say it's just like some random occurrence so this is one of the driving incentives for the historical materialist one of their driving really drives driving drives good good english david good job driving drives in that they draw upon this past in order to oppose an oppression a danger that they experience in their lives and one way that this danger can assume itself can really take shape is through conformism, where within the present, there's this expectation imposed to adopt the standard life script of the ruling class, of the bourgeois, and to adopt these ideas in order to motivate 
conformism to motivate people really approximating and gravitating towards this norm. So in the face of this, historical materialists can draw upon tradition. That means looking to the past and bringing the past to the present in order to identify the roots of this conformism, how it isn't just a natural way to exist in the world, how there is a history to it, and how that history likely came about violently in order to oppose these bourgeois values of conformism. So in this moment, tradition is like the redeemer, almost like a messianic messiah type character against the antichrist of conformism or of bourgeois values here. So can we see this as moments where the proletariat is threatened by overarching bourgeois culture, or we can see it as such. So in these moments of conformism, Benjamin suggests, not even the dead are protected, because inconformism demands an erasure of the past, an erasure of the suffering of people before that moment. And tradition is a way to revitalize that, to pay a debt to those of the past, to resuscitate them in some measure. And this is different from the practices of those historians who are only distant in a romanticized, distant past. They're only interested in a past that won't actually affect the present day. They just do it as something that they want to explore and investigate for their own fascination. And in doing so, they'll focus on, most of the time, the uh, really the bounty, the successes of the victors, and look at what they have acquired, the culture that they have maintained and proffered up historically, and what he calls their cultural treasures. This historian really emphasizes these things. And in doing so, what they end up doing, these historians, is benefiting not only the victors of the past in their memory, but also the current victors. They benefit those people who are currently the rulers because they have earn their status through legacies of domination and oppression that have benefited the rulers of the past. So the historical materialist, by contrast, looks at these historical cultural treasures, not with joy or not with fascination. They don't exalt these treasures. Instead, they look at them with horror because they acknowledge that these treasures were acquired through violence. They were acquired through oppression through domination through colonialism and so on and as he writes about this he says that there is no document of culture which is not at the same time a document of barbarism that is one that depended upon violence so the historical materialist brushes history then against the grain the historical materialist is not content to just accept the narrative that is bestowed upon them through the annals of bourgeois culture. Now something happens when emphasis is placed on the experience of oppressed people and people who experience violence historically and in the present, there is an added effect. And that effect is to begin to acknowledge that the state of emergency that he found himself in and that the world Europe found itself in in 1940s uh, Europe with emerging fascism and emergent fascism what happens when you acknowledge these histories, these sordid histories of oppression, is that this state of emergency is not an exception, but the rule itself. Where there is no peace for oppressed people, 
there are no times of um, of freedom really for people who are undergoing colonialism or who are exploited in their jobs who are forced to work um, really impossible hours while receiving nothing their entire lives are, li are, are, are just a perpetual state of emergency and it is important to acknowledge this in order to really vitalize a revolutionary spirit against this continued oppression against the continued forces that exploit these people and the pe who have exploited the people of the past and in doing so means opposing those historical trends those really those proponents of historicism who just suggest that fascism is a product of the past it's almost like a historical norm that is to say that it can be found all throughout history and that societies gravitate towards it of course benjamin's not buying any of that that's just the narrative of the victors in order to justify their position as rulers and to continue these legacies of oppression which is not what he wants to see continued at all now here we arrive at the image of the angel of history that i think this text is most famous for now this image this angel of history comes from a work of art called Angel Novus, or Angelus Novus, that is by Paul Klee, which I recommend you look up. But what it depicts is an angel with its wings up, and it is clearly looking at something kind of off to the right of the viewer. And this angel is being, it looks like they are helpless and they're just being almost blown away from the thing that they're looking at. Now, Benjamin leans on this image in order to think about history. He uses it, uses it as a metaphor for history. Now he describes that the angel of history in this image is pushed backwards, or is, is really pushed forwards while looking backwards. Now they are moving through time. This angel is moving through time while looking backwards. They're like sitting in the back seat of a car, looking out the back window as the car moves, moves forward. Now behind them, and what they are looking at is history itself. But this isn't a neat image of history. Instead, what they see, what this angel sees, because it's an angel, it's a, you know, it's an all-knowing creature. They see history for the rubble that it is, the violence that it is, how every single part of it is just this mass of disparate instances of violence, which in diagnosing this and identifying this, Benjamin isn't trying to normalize or naturalize. He's saying that this is very much the product of bad, intentful actors. But this angel is seeing all of this violence, and all the angel wants to do is to just stop and reassemble the rubble and, you know, to fix it. But the angel cannot, because the angel is being constantly pushed through time, through history, into the future. And this is the wind of progress. So this angel is just totally subject to the force of progress in pushing them away from acknowledging and from repairing uh, an injured history, an injured past. Now, progress here is not, for Benjamin, it's not inevitable. This progress refers to a very specific kind that is imbued upon the story of history by historians by people immersed in the in the art of historicism 
So against some people and politicians who attempt to oppose fascism by appealing to progress and faith, Benjamin is suggesting that progress, that very idea, is a problem here in actually identifying these violences of the past and rectifying them today. And that is because in opposing fascism by just saying that, oh, well, it is a remnant from a previous time, it is just part of humans' lower nature, Benjamin acknowledges that fascism, especially in its technological proficiency, is very much in line with the dominant strands of these, the ideas of progress. It very much adopts these standards, these ideas. And we find the same kind of argument in the work of Adorno and Horkheimer in that they want to um, disabuse people of the idea that fascism is somehow irrational. It is actually an intensified rationality, especially in the ways that it used, like IBM, for example, to record keep, to keep track of people, to place people under uh, serious control in the way that Jewish people were moved across the country, placed in camps, and eventually uh, put to death in really in horrifying numbers, of course, among, of course, gay black and roma people and so many others so benjamin wants to think about something other than progress he doesn't want to look to the future as a way to oppose fascism a naive faith that things will just get better he acknowledges that this demands a a reapplication and a re-understanding of what history and progress can even mean really to deconstruct them in entire in their entirety and to supplant them with a history, with a tradition that actually embraces the experiences, acknowledges them, puts into use, makes it generative histories of the oppression of so, so many different people. And to use that to push history, not this naive idea of a magical idea of progress that just will fix everything. Now, this idea of progress, though, has really infected the social democrats at the time and entire swaths of the working class who have been made to believe that their suffering is just a stepping stone in the course of history, that they are meant to suffer, and then eventually one day it will be better. And to some extent, we can really find this in Marx, Marx's texts themselves. Marx is very clear that capitalism is a necessary stepping stone to communism, and it must attain certain criteria in order for communism to emerge. But this is obviously problematic because what it does is it naturalizes people's suffering in order to attain this eventual promised land, this eventual utopia. So I think, and I'm, you know, this, this is up for debate, but it's in these moments that we see Benjamin's departure from this specific Marxist idea, which I think he would be not so willing to locate in Marx himself, but to locate among certain vulgar Marxists which I, for myself, I think you can, you can really see this in Marx. This is why Marx justifies the col colonization of India, where he says that India must be colonized in order to liberate it from its past, in order to open it up to the spectral light of future enlightenment, of scientific socialism, which I think is just evidence that with, even within Marx, we see... The practice of this idea of progress that Benjamin is trying to undo here.
which I, you know, I'm certainly on Benjamin's side in this debate. Now, this faith in progress takes many different forms, too, where progress is associated with, quite naively and quite reductively, with technological developments. And so in the cases of, like, factories adopting technological developments, new ways of uh, organizing machinery or running machinery, new types of machines with technological process, progress, some of these people take this to be a political achievement like entire swaths of the working classes, of the social democrats, of vulgar Marxists. They suggest that this is the road to liberation. But Benjamin isn't buying it, because he thinks that this just keeps the structure intact while making it more efficient. And, you know, by extension, making the oppression itself more efficient. And this really comes down to a broader issue at the heart of what he calls vulgar Marxists, which is in a sense unfair because we also find this in Marx. And the idea is that for the vulgar Marxists, for Benjamin, they associate all value with labor. To say that labor is the primary source of value. And we find the same thing in Adam Smith and David Ricardo to some extent. L human labor originates all value of things. Where if you trace anything's value, it'll come down at some measure to it having been made and real human labor having worked on it. Now, to oppose this, you know, some interpretations of Benjamin's texts here have pointed to how Marx is a little bit more ambiguous about this, in that Marx identifies that it's not really human labor, because how do we actually, how do we actually find the value of human labor? You know, we can say it is the primary source of it, but how do we value it? Well, you can value human labor by how much, you know, uh, sustenance it will give you, by how much of the land it can work on. Like what you end up getting here is a kind of Mobius strip or that snake eating its tail thing. It's difficult to find the point of origin. Any point could be the point of origin of value. And we get this really, uh, this idea in Marx in, in some of his texts, but within Capital, which is you know the most important, we see this in the third volume toward the end where he begins to actually question an association he attributed to uh, between labor power and value in the earlier uh, volumes of Capital, like Capital Volume 1, where it seems as though he's more willing to advocate for and to emphasize labor powers originating power of value, how it originates value. So Benjamin says that these vulgar Marxists, which I think is actually in Marx too, but anyways, these vulgar Marxists naturalize, naturalize labor as the source of value. And they think that it's optimization to optimize labor can be a way to liberate all people. If it is just used properly to satisfy needs, then the suffering will end. Of course, they frame labor as something that transcends nature in this instance. It's something that can be properly exploited with the right technological intervention to liberate all people. But in order to do that, Benjamin is clear that they naively just displace the oppression that was experienced or imparted upon working people and then just applies it to nature. Where then the natural world, you know, trees will be cut down more efficiently, animals will be slaughtered more efficiently, and so on. All of that suffering will just be shifted onto this other sphere. It's it is already, but it will just be more intensified on this other sphere. Not to mention that in many different cases where liberation might be actually sought will come at the expense of people in other countries experiencing 
uh, having to work harder to allow, you know, people in the liberated places to actually um, enjoy their liberation. And this will go down racial lines as well, where uh, racialized people all across the world will be forced into even more dire working situations into more intense forms of exploitation. Now, Benjamin doesn't think that, you know, all hope is lost. He thinks there can be an organic, benevolent connection between humans and nature. Like the, and he cites the utopian socialists before 1848 as a way to justify this possibility, that there can be um, an equitable connection between the two. It's just that it has to be carefully pursued, not just like, oh, the end goal is human liberation, doesn't matter how we affect the planet. He, he doesn't want to do that. Now, the social democrats at the time, including others, view the suffering of workers as just a means to an end for future generations. So they don't focus on correcting the present because they're just like, oh, well, you know, eventually it'll come. Eventually the utopia will come, so let's not worry about it. So workers lose touch with their anger and with their spirit of sacrifice when they focus on liberated grandchildren in the future instead of enslaved ancestors. Because remember, what Benjamin is trying to do is to create this connection between the present and the past. You know, he's not worried about the future. He thinks that in this unity of the present and the past, if they are folded together and histories of oppression are brought into the light of the present, like really in all its detail, then suffering will end. Or at least the process by which it will eventually end will begin. But it will begin with very much a jolt. So for the social democrats, progress was conflated with the whole progress of humanity. It's just treated as this nebulous universal thing. It was perceived as boundless. And it was perceived as inevitable. It just happens. And they submit to an idea of progress in what he calls homogenous empty time where there is no significance attributed to history it's almost like the only significance in history is its movement itself so this collapses the past the present and the future into just this you know treating human history as just this expansive events and that's just all it is and these events move through time and new things come from these previous events and we are just moving through this abyss altogether like in unity, which Benjamin is like, no, no, no. I mean, we've got so many people's histories are being erased. Only certain histories are actually being recorded and emphasized. It is an illusion almost that the, there's this idea of homogenous empty time, yet the historians submit to it and those uh, committed to historicism. Now, in contrast to homogenous empty time, he gives us the notion of now time, which births history, which allows for history to emerge because it's when we are in tune with the present and the struggles within the present that we actually construct history like in the moment of danger he described earlier looking back and wanting to understand it or like the angel of history wanting to fix the rubble so this now time is messianic like the messiah in its attention to the present as a site of redemption and resurrection that can only be acknowledged when located in the past. And so there is this mutual uh, consideration of this mutual constitution between the past and the present, where the present and the struggles experienced there 
give birth to the past as a way to understand the present. But in doing so, by looking at the past, we actually understand the present. So we see how they both constitute and shape one another. Difficult to locate the starting point, though, in this, which is always, it doesn't need to be one or the other. We can hold both to be true. We are, we are nuanced beings in that respect. Now, there's, some, there's a point here where I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, but it's, it seems to me that here he's saying that we must discern those efforts to look to the past conducted by the bourgeois we described earlier. They look to the past as part of like an empty homogenous time where you know we can just pick and choose anything we want that we find interesting that represents the values of the victors. We must discern those from efforts to look to the past in order to undo oppression. These are two very different things for Benjamin. So revolutionary imagination knows that it will explode history's continuum. It will, in French, there's really a good word for this, it's called uh, bouleversement. It's like a, uh, a, a world-altering event. And historically, he points to the fact that within many revolutionary movements were, were, was the impetus for new calendar dates, and new calendars even being born out of these revolutions. So we get days to commemorate uh, like Labor Day, you know, for workers, for in, anything like that. And he uses this to emphasize the difference between the clock and the calendar in measuring time, where the calendar is actually attuned to historical moments of significance, whereas the clock is just an indifferent kind of vector or engine for the movement of time that just seems to not care about any specific moment. It's just, just very mechanical. It's just ticking away. It doesn't hold any moment to be significant. And he, he observes that during the July Revolution, there were testimonies from different people in different places about soldiers, revolutionaries shooting clocks, shooting like clock towers. And Benjamin uses this as a kind of an, like really confirming his idea here that the clock in representing this appreciation for a neutral, objective, mechanical idea of homogenous, empty time, these people were targeting the clock in order to oppose this idea about homogenous, empty time in favor of a more uh, significant approach to understanding time or attributing significance to events. So the historical materialist takes their present as a starting point in order to situate themselves the historicist does not, you know, by contrast, because we know the historic, historicist does not work to connect the past with the present. They aren't interested in that. So historicism views history as eternal and views all events equally, like a clock. The historical materialist, on the other hand, when, you know, we're, we're also talking about a specific historical materialist here, right? The one who is actually attuned to the theology present in it, an eye towards tradition, if that tradition is of the oppressed. The historical materialist knows when to pause and attribute significance to a past that explains the present, explains the suffering in the present, thereby birthing the present to some extent. Here again, we see this kind of Mobius strip type illustration of the past and the present. So invoking a quote from a biologist, human history is just, it's a blip when compared to the history of the earth and then even more to the history of the universe. It is a minuscule moment. So 
it's not totally outlandish to think of us as being just one continuous present. It's, it's like not enough time has passed. We can think of ourselves in a perpetual present, which also has negative connotations depending on who you read. There is a book, I think, called The Perpetual Present. By I think it's an Italian. I don't know. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Italian philosopher. I'm not going to look it up. Whatever. Tell me if you know. But what we see here is that, or this idea from him, is that we can actually look at human history a lot more like simply not as being this infinite expanse which it is of course we know it is but we can acknowledge its small place in order to take um responsibility in atoning for the sins of the past and dealing with them now and the oppressions that are still experienced today and the target uh so many people so we should have no problem then with adapting to now time instead of homogenous empty time and seeing it all through this lens and that wraps it up except for the addendum where we get two two additional paragraphs that are just more of the same but still significant so addendum a where he says he says that the historian who understands that history isn't just out there out there in the world like just neutrally existing out there this historian is the one who opens the door for a history that is connected to the present, to understand the present, to change the present. And then addendum B is where he said he suggests that through the Torah, uh, because of the Torah's instruction in, in Judaism, Jewish people for him have had more of an, have a, I don't know if you hear an alarm outside, but there's a, you know, police, it's the nature of the city. Uh, he's, he identifies that because of the Torah's influence in Judaism, that Jewish people have more of the tools necessary to appreciate the past than I assume he's comparing to like Christianity that's often geared towards the future, like the coming Messiah, you know, the future liberation of, of final judgment and, and so on. So yeah, this is where he ends off. I mean, this text is so complicated, very enigmatic. You know, Benjamin is on full display here with just how eclectic, that is how broad his knowledge base is. And really, you know, comparing some of his other texts to this, like the Arcades Project and other shorter pieces, we really see how his thought has remained consistent in lots of ways throughout his life. But yeah, without getting too deep into the weeds there, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I omitted, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, stay tuned. If you want to see more content, I can post easier on TikTok because it's shorter stuff. So if you want more, you know, you can go find me on TikTok for, for more of this. And uh, yeah, on that note, uh, oh yeah, if you listen on a podcast, you can leave a review. That would help. That allows you to and help me out monetarily if you'd like, but no pressure. And on that note, catch you next time. Take care.